Welcome to Freely Filtered, the increasingly regular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NEFJC journal clubs. NEFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the articles that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, you should talk with your doctor before making any medical decisions. This podcast will discuss off-label indications for medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, but most people know me as Kidney Boy. Tonight, I'm joined by the full filtrate, Swap. Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmat. I'm a nephrologist and uh, epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa in Canada. Jenny. I'm Jenny Lin. I'm a physician scientist and attending nephrologist at Northwestern University. Samira. I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Matt. Hi, I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University, and I also have a huge affinity to the renin-angiotensin system. Renin or renin? Let's not go there, please. (laughs) ACE2 or AD2 or Uh, ANG2? Hey, (laughs) if you want to have a lesson in nomenclature and ANG, I'll have a separate podcast for that. For our (laughs) non-nephrology audience, it's renin. (laughs) Thank you. Tonight, we'll be talking about the only thing that anybody is talking about, COVID-19. All through medical school and residency, ID doctors would talk about the Spanish flu of 1918 and remind us that it could happen again, that if it did, we'd be unprepared and it'd be incredibly disruptive. Those lectures always felt incredibly abstract and detached from our day-to-day life. But now, this month, we are buckled in and heading to that future. Some of us are already there. Most of us are a bit further back in the roller coaster where we can see from our cars the very front of it beginning to tip over and plunge, and we can sense the inevitability but haven't reached the big drop yet. I started taking care of my first COVID-19 patient yesterday, and it felt monumental in part because in a few weeks, I feel that it'll be all I'll be doing. So here we are tonight to discuss COVID-19 in the kidney. Let's start with a question I know we're getting a lot of. Are ACE and ARBs toxic with SARS-CoV-2. Matt? Okay. Uh, well, this is definitely a topic I have spent a lot of time researching and trying to understand along with uh, many people. Uh, we have assembled a team on NFJC of about 14 individuals that um, span from experts in ACE2 to the renin-angiotensin system, epidemiologists in hypertension, and also uh, in different um, aspects of uh, kidney physiology, so the so bottom. Why, why is this a question? Yeah. Why Why did this even come up as a, as a as a, an issue? Well, um, it's because the the virus, um, the coronavirus that is causing COVID nineteen, hijacks the renin renin angiotensin system to enter the cell. And it does that by binding to the ACE two protein. And that's how it gets into the cell. Now, ACE2 protein, is that something that we would have learned about before this? I would hope so, but apparently um, it is a new thing that people are learning now. I call it the breaks of the renin-angiotensin system. And so I thought of an interesting title, uh, and I don't know if it'll stick in a recent paper that I'm trying to write up. It's got COVID-19 in the kidneys, um, hijacking the breaks. So how does it use an enzyme to get into the cell? So this is a really interesting question. And ACE2 actually is stuck to the membrane. 
and it is uh, shed by protease, proteases, various proteases that can cleave it and make it uh, go into the plasma. So it, it's not a receptor, it's an enzyme. It has a lot of homology for ACE itself, but one of the big differences is actually sticking on the uh, membrane. So that's another aspect of ACE2 that's very challenging is because trying to figure out how it works is hard because you have to actually look at the tissues. So this ACE2, what it's not, what do you mean it, it, it's the breaks of the angiotensin aldosterone system? What, is it, what does it actually do? So one of its main functions when it was first described in 2000 is to cleave angiotensin 2, which is an eight peptide molecule, um, and turn it into ang1 to 7, which is 7. And that has the activity that's opposite of ang2, and it binds to something called the mass receptor. The mass receptor has vasodilatory properties um, and sort of opposing actions like uh, anti-inflammatory actions. So you have reduced ANG2, which is the main effector molecule of the entire renin-angiotensin system, which causes all the things that you think of, vasoconstriction, inflammation, all the things we try to get rid of when we treat our patients with ARBs or ACE inhibitors. And then it causes less of that and more of the good ANG1-7. So that's the breaks. And if you remember, where is all the ACE? Lungs. Lungs. So you need a break. And you need a break that can sort of dampen down if, for instance, something happened and you had a lot of ANG2 being made. Okay, so remind, So, but ANG2 acts throughout the body. It doesn't act just in the lungs, right? ANG2 acts everywhere. And that's just where it the ACE is made. So do we find ACE2 everywhere? ACE2 is everywhere as well. <laughs> There's a lot of body of, of evidence suggesting it works in the brain and the kidney and the and the heart and the lungs. How and does this, I'm sorry, oh. is this SARS-CoV-2 entering cells throughout the body? Because we only hear about it really in the lungs, right? It is quite possible that it can enter uh, many other cell types. The, the main cell type that it has been shown to enter is the type 2 pneumocyte, which oddly enough has the abbreviation of AT2. Okay. It, it, has, been, it has been found in um, kidney autopsies within the cells. I don't yeah. know exactly which cells, um, but that's been one of the reasons why um, donation has been basically, you know, not even considered for these patients. Mm -hmm. Oh God, that's a, that seems like a good decision not to Definitely. In case you wanted the path, that's the path. So the last, okay. uh, I mean, the, the very last section on the page we updated yesterday was single cell RNA-seq data from the lung. We also did a deep dive on single cell RNA-seq, which is basically taking single cells and looking to see what genes are being expressed. And so you get a good idea about where this is happening at. And so, so you can actually see viral genes then? Right? Not viral genes, but you want to see where nah. ACE2 yeah, ACE2. And where is ACE2 and also TNPRSS2? And you need and both of those things to get into the cell. Sorry, what, what is that? What is, what is that? Yeah, what is this TM? Uh, what is what? <laughs> TNPRSS2. <laughs> Looks uh, like you haven't read the page that Matt. Yeah. No, I, I read it, but it's just. I studied it extensively. <laughs> okay. TNPRSS2 is interesting God. because you need to have that to sort of uh, allow the virus to enter into the cell. It's a protease. There's a, a whole series of them. For instance, oh, yeah. TM transmembrane protease series two. Exactly. So there's a TMPRSS four, uh, and that's uh, has a function actually to cleave um, um, alpha and um, beta enac. And so, is this related to the hypokalemia that's been reported? 
So the hypokalemia is an interesting story. We have a long discussion about that. Is this driven by the renin angiotensin system? And the jury is still out on that. Many of the patients that they were looking at um, urine. Why, why don't you rewind it? Why don't you? Yeah. Uh, what, is that we, is that even hypokalemia? Is yeah, tell, tell us about that. Start at the beginning of the hypokalemia story for those of us who missed that. Um, I, th- I think it was in a, one of the preprint servers. It was a case series, I believe, from China where they were reported that um, this group of patients, a consistent finding was hypokalemia. Um, and right, right. So um, exactly right. But if you look at the largest case series we have, which is the Guan one with 1,099 cases from uh, multiple centers in China, uh, the mean sodium, mean potassium was 3.8. So people have made a lot of big, you know, and we have a section on hypokalemia, but I'm not convinced it's such a, you know, we are are dotting threads and, you know, uh, drawing lines through dots, which may not be there. So one series found a lot of hypokalemia. Another series didn't find any. Samira, what anything else on that that thread that found the hypokalemia? What else did they? No, I think I mean this was pretty know? early on, and there was a hypothesis that the renin angiotensin system was maybe playing a role, but it was just kind of um, speculation. Matt, anything to follow up on that? We had a, a large discussion about this for almost an entire day on our little separate thread that is discussing this from Paul Welling and others. And I, I think the one of the things that we we looked at was that there wasn't a lot of a lot more evidence, like Joel had mentioned, and where ACE2 and TMPRSS2 and mass receptor are expressed are not in the distal nephron. And so that was, so there's a lot of things to say, well, maybe uh, it's not that. However, it could be aldosterone. We haven't measured that. Um, There's still a lot of questions. Also, these patients were on a lot of antivirals. They used a lot of antivirals in, um, in China. And so there's a lot of confounding um, as well. So the jury's still out, but I think there's, that's one little piece of the puzzle of what's happening. Now, other people have measured ANG2, and there's a story of, of a preprint that had more ANG2, the worse the patients did, were, were doing based on their FiO2 to uh, PaO2 sort of ratio and, uh, and viral load even. Uh, so does the virus, I know it binds to this ACE2, does it deactivate the ACE2 when it does bind? Yeah, it? so the thought would be that whenever it takes the ACE2, either it, it, it the, the cell itself downregulates ACE2 or it's the virus itself. There's a nice um, basic science study by Cuba et al. in Nature of Medicine after the first SARS where they looked at this and there's definitely a big downregulation of ACE2 whenever the viral infection occurs. And so when that happens, you have less ANG1 to 7, more ANG2. And the thought is uh, then you have hyperactive um, RAS, and then you have vasoconstriction, inflammation. And so what they did in that study is they made a model of lung injury by this um, acid lung injury model. And then they injected the spike protein of the coronavirus into the um, abdomen of mice and they gave the mice half of them got low sartan and half didn't and the ones with low sartan had better lungs at the end of the study okay let's rewind a little bit because that, that's really the heart where we got started on this discussion was people are freaking the frack out about ace inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers and here the first you know here you just give me a story of where low sartan is helpful so why are okay? So we've got this ACE R this ACE two issue with the 
SARS-CoV-2. Help me out. How's that? And then we got this ACE2 thing. How does that relate to ACEs and ARBs? What do they do? Well, the thought is uh, there is sort of a, uh, I would say, a drumbeat of people that are saying that both these drugs increase ACE2. And if you dive into the literature, you find that this is a very mixed picture. The studies in Lancet Respiratory Medicine and the BMJ that kind of lit this whole thing on fire cited one paper that looked at giving an ACE inhibitor to rats in the heart. They had higher mRNA expression of ACE2. They gave the drug in the heart? No, they gave the mice, the, or the, sorry, the rats the drug, then they take the heart, and then they make RNA, do real-time PCR, and so the mRNA goes up. So the, in, the in the heart. Up in the heart. In the heart. There's some data. A couple other papers show that. Uh, there's one in the blood vessels of the kidneys. Um, but there's also a few papers that show there is no increase. And then there's some human data that also shows no increase in plasma ACE2 levels. Well, what about epidemiologic data? Do we have any data on the ACEs are super common drugs? Yeah. We should probably be able to know whether You'd, these patients are doing worse or not. Do we? Doing, you mean with? With COVID-19. Are there poor outcomes if they're on ACE inhibitors? Yeah. We do What's not have that data yet. That's what we need. 80,000 people got this disease in China. We don't know this answer. Don't know it. <laughs> I, I think it, yeah. Uh, I'm sure they're looking at it now because this came up since then, right? Um, I, I'm pretty sure we'll be seeing some data in the next few days. From just I a, don't know that from we a will mechanistic be, but, you know, standpoint, um, is yeah. higher ACE2. So, okay, sure. You might have more viral entry if you have more cells that express ACE2, but are higher ACE2 levels actually bad for the cell, Matt? Higher ACE2 levels would be good. ACE2 Except has been shown to be good in several- those to enter the cells, right? Well, I mean, if you just take the viral part out, there's, there's evidence that suggests that ACE2 is good in different other viral infections. For instance, RSV, uh, influenza, um, there, you know, there's actually uh, kind of a retrospective study looking at ARBs in, um, in viral pneumonia in humans that appear to be better, but that's confounded by the fact that maybe the ones that stayed on the ACE inhibitors, ARVs, because they weren't doing as bad. So, I mean, it's still kind of a muddy uh, water, uh, but there's conflicting evidence, uh, some suggesting they are beneficial, and then there's the hypothesis they could be bad based on data that is fairly weak. Okay. So it sounds like the basic science is not going to give us the answer, at least with the literature that exists today, that you could look at it all you want. You're not going to find the answer there. I think you can we're basically just, support your hypothesis both ways. Both ways. And we're really, and, and this, the, the whole decision is going to tilt on when we get this first epidemiologic data on how these patients actually do. Right. And, and right. there are actually two trials, right, uh, from the University and, of Minnesota. Yeah, tell me about those trials. Um, so Matt probably knows more about that, but uh, they Since are... he's an author. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there are uh, two trials running out of uh, Minnesota where they have uh, low-dose losartan versus placebo in inpatients and outpatients. So these are naive patients, if I'm not wrong. Uh, so these are not patients who are on ACE or ARB. These are patients who are not on them. And then half of them would get the uh, low-dose losartan, and half of them will get a placebo. And what's low-dose? 25? Matt? I'm looking at right now to see what it is. Some sort of yeah. dose but, of losartan. Yeah, but while he looks up, you know, let's step back to see why, you know, why we are making a big deal out of this. There is a lot of suggestion that maybe 
patients with hypertension are those who have um, this risk of uh, COVID-19. And, and if you see all the preprints and all the papers that have come out, hypertension seems to be a common uh, comorbidity, even more so than diabetes or heart disease or whatever. Um, the, the problem I have, of course, uh, is that none of these data have been adjusted for age. And we do seem we do know that age is a big uh, risk factor, uh, and age tracks very closely with hypertension. Uh, for example, the la- latest uh, data, which is on the NFJC page, is from uh, it- Italy, um, showing of two uh, about three hundred and fifty five patients who died, seventy six percent of them had hypertension. Uh, now that seems like a huge number, but if you step back, the mean age of those uh, patients was eighty years, and at the age of eighty years. 76% of the population will have hypertension. So that seems, it's nothing out of the ordinary uh, to have hypertension. But and that sort of led so, to this, so, is this so ACE or ARP? How are these epidemiologists not controlling for age? Are these, what are they, are they baby epidemiologists? We're not even sure how they're What's, defining hypertension, so. Exactly, we are not even sure how they're defining hypertension. It's like someone was asking about what were the blood pressures and I'm like, I don't even think, you know, it may or may not have been ICD codes. It probably was, you know, are they on a pill? For all I know, it may have been something very simple. This Um, brings up another point, though, which is right now there's a rapid dissemination of information, right? Because these preprints, there's no, they're free. You can easily access them. Anyone can access them. And they're not peer reviewed. Um, So in terms of how people in the public might be interpreting data, if they like, you know, go into Google and say COVID and something else, a lot of these preprints do come out on a Google search. So, but from your impression, you know, for the whole group, like what is your um, gestalt about the quality of some of these studies and what we can take away from it and some things that we should be cognizant of, especially for other people in other uh, research domains who are not necessarily as well-versed in clinical research. Uh, Jenny, I think that's a great point. I mean, we had, I, I know Yale, made a hospital policy to stop ACE and ARBs in all their patients with suspected COVID-19. At least that was reported on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. That was awful. Wait, that reported on Twitter is not fact? <laughs> I mean, there, there was like emails that's what we're talking about that right people now. saw. Um, I haven't heard any official Yale post so, say that was the point. So yeah, that's what I want to say. It's, uh, my hospital is sending out daily updates. And today's daily, no, excuse me, yesterday's daily update, Wednesday's daily update said, Anybody who is uh, suspected or has COVID-19 should have their ACEs and ARBs stopped. No, really. And so I fired off an email and I, and, you know, and, and as subtle as I usually am, you know, spitting fire smoke coming out of my ears. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the email bounced around the administration. I finally got to the, the head of the task force and the, and the, the, guy, the, guy, the head of the task force said, yes, we talked about it a couple of days ago and we decided we should not have a position on this. And they went from the official statement of their policymaking to we will not have a position to somebody writing in the newsletter, you shouldn't do it. And he was, he was flabbergasted. He's like, I don't, you know, I don't know what to tell you, Joel. You know, we're doing the right thing. We agree with you. This should not be a recommendation. But somehow between there and the person who was writing the newsletter, it got in. Well, that's a problem. Yeah, this is a problem. Yeah, it's a huge problem. I think it's really changed my view of social media, and we've been doing this for a while. And uh, it, you know, I think even small communications, people asking questions, can be misconstrued as fact depending on who's saying them. 
So the time is now to be cautious. And I think our approach on our website to just basically find a consortium of people that are experts when there's a question that's being asked and update in real time and have people committed to finding the right answer. But I think the problem is these things are coming so fast that, and we're all dealing with the COVID virus that it's taking a toll on all of us. And I think that's the the challenging thing. You go on social media and see another one. You're like, how many days is it going to take me to find the, the answers to answer these questions? And so I think a lot of people just divert to what they know and people want to do things. And that equals basically behavior uh, that just looks at headlines. Okay. I want to move past this topic, but I'm going to give uh, anybody who wants a chance to have a final, a final statement on this, their moment. But I do want to emphasize that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, all the major medical societies, including American College of Physicians, uh, the ID societies, all of them, the hypertension societies, all of them have said there's not enough data to draw a conclusion about ACE, ARBs, and COVID-19. And for right now, we're recommending you stay on the drug. Is that still the status of all those? It was uniform. There's 12 organizations we, sh- we currently have on the webpage. I'm sure there are a lot more that exist. Um, but, And I think that's what I want to make sure everyone recognizes. We're not coming out and saying that we recommend to stay on them because there's evidence that say we we have no evidence either way if they're good or bad in the face of COVID. There's some evidence in both directions and we feel that stopping them would create even more problems in patients that need those medications for heart failure, for kidney disease, for proteinuria, and that stopping them all of a sudden could actually cause more harm than good to the patient. And that's why we recommend at this point to continue them and stop them for just the regular indications like you would for any patient. Evidence-based. I just wanted to read this tweet that I just saw that Swapnil responded to where someone said, what strikes me as odd is still this question of the supposed protective benefit of ACE inhibitors and ARB. If it worked, why are people on these meds still dying? And I think like Matt said, there's just not enough evidence either way. And that should really be the take home that we should try to spread within the medical community. And there's no data. Like I just replied to him as Matt was talking, because there is absolutely no data to show that patients from Italy are dying, are on ACE or ARBs. There's nothing at all. You know, people are making up stuff and, and you know, confidently making statements. No, that's for sure. Uh, so related to that was this kerfuffle about uh, NSAIDs. Swapnil, do you want to talk about that? Sure. So uh, the it's the the first time I saw this was the French Minister of Health, who's himself a physician, tweeted um, that you know we recommend everyone should take uh, acetaminophen or paracetamol, as it's known in other parts of the world, rather than take ibuprofen specifically. And we have seen that patients who take ibuprofen. I'm paraphrasing him, but it was something along those lines that taking ibuprofen we have seen are those patients have serious outcomes and they are dying. Um, now, the what added on to that is that some person from WHO came and said, hey, we have thought about this. And and actually, if you read through what the WHO said, it, it is kind of wiffly-waffly. But, you know, they're saying only take ibuprofen if you need it, you know, take acetaminophen otherwise. But they didn't blanket come out. WHO say, is taking the position that we do not consider ibuprofen an acceptable recreational drug. Right. right? Something only along those uh, I thought the European Medical Agency was more firm saying, you know, there is categorically no evidence for this. Um, and since then, what has happened is uh, I'm just relaying the uh, 
the facts as they came out and then we'll go back to why this there, there might be something to this story uh, or maybe not the swedish uh, poison center person uh, uh, again this is a twitter thread um, and this is why you know it, it's still useful to have social media and stuff so the swedish poison center person contacted the french ministry of health and said what is this data you have seen and they said no we haven't seen anything this is just you know based on past experience we say ibuprofen should not be used so there is nothing they have seen with covid that if i believe the swedish uh, professional who said what they said this came out of you know this is totally what matt was saying about and jenny was saying about you know spreading uh, fake news um, now going back the 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 logic is also appeared on a, on that lancet uh, uh, letter uh, unpeer reviewed letter uh, which stated that ibuprofen increases ace2 uh, which it does, uh, you know, if you look at some anim- animal models. Of course it does. So it goes back to, you know, that's why Matt is There's smiling because it goes back to ACE2. Inhibitors, uh, increase ACE2 as well. Right. I mean, I so, think that's where we're like, we find a common mechanism and we just sort of hammer on it and say, well, anything that does that has to be bad. And we, we don't right, know. That. Right. Yeah. But if you look at uh, the, the epidemiological evidence in past, uh, there are many reports where, you know, you will see NSAIDs have worse outcomes compared to Tylenol but this is just due to acetaminophen or paracetamol but this is just confounding by indication people who have more severe disease who have more severe higher fever or more body ache or whatever more symptoms are more likely to take ibuprofen Um, and you know someone with kidney disease is definitely not going to take ibuprofen they are going to stick to acetaminophen and they may have uh, you know those kind of things uh, would play into the uh, outcomes that you are seeing so there's a lot of confounding there Um, in fact David uh, Yurling who has a very nice tweet thread about this uh, he showed that there are a couple of um, uh, data showing that, uh, again, this is not uh, clinical data, but showing that in, uh, indomethacin, uh, which is an NSAID, uh, not used very often now, it, it inhibits viral RNA synthesis with uh, the original SARS virus. And there's also something uh, that naproxen might, might inhibit uh, viral replication. Uh, again, these are, you know, uh, slow, tissue studies. Now. Let's slow down. Slow down. Slow down. This is a podcast here. Yeah, so uh, that around. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's right. It's it's same thing with the ACE two story. Is that the preclinical data is it doesn't give you any hint. There's there's data on both sides, and we're just waiting for high quality I mean, epidemiologic studies. I mean, people are really you're, when you, when you don't know what to do, you're seeing a very severe disease, and this is a a time in which. Uh, um, not only do you do things that might be irrational, but it's easy to spread. And that's what we're seeing is just, it is really amplifying. And I think that's where it is challenging to go online and see these things because, um, if, you know, if you're a good physician and you look at it, you're like, whoa, that's a pretty good, you know, like that headline says to stop what? And then you're like, I, I've got to look into that. Well, and the, the WHO tweet was completely, uh, did you read it? I mean, it was a it, it was worded in a very confounding, double negative t- type of way, made it really difficult to. You know, hold on, give me a second to find it. I got it. I got yeah. it. Well, it, go says, uh, it. So it says, um, question: Could ibuprofen worsen disease for people with COVID nineteen? Uh, the answer is, based on currently available information, WHO does not recommend against the use of of ibuprofen. Hey. That of of happens a lot. Yeah, that's but that, but, <laughs> but they don't recommend against the does not recommend against. So that means withholding. That means it's pro. 
Yeah, it recommends using it. It, re- it recommends that you're allowed to use it. That's the the, the 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 end result of their double negative is you can use it. Yeah, okay. uh, but but the reason uh, you know why would you use these drugs? It, it still is reasonable that taking NSAIDs or uh, acetaminophen is not the treatment of a viral infection, right? You're just treating the symptoms. You don't necessarily need to use it. Fever is your body's response, uh, you know, and all that stuff we talk about. Take it only if the fever is really going up and and you can't uh, function, etc. Don't take it for the slightest smidgen of fever and, and body ache you have if you can rest and relax and get over it. I think there's some similar challenges in the transplant community. Um, we already have fewer transplant patients and even with existing data for non-COVID things, we have a hard time with getting a sample size. And right now we have case reports, two patients coming out, kind of seeing how they're treated. And um, it's just inevitable that people will see those and try to model after that behavior, mainly because there's nothing else. And already within my transplant group, and I'm sure at others across the country, there's a lot of debate about what to do with immunosuppressants, should be giving antivirals, should we try IVIG for immunomodulatory effects? Um, And it's, I think, a hard question for the general population and even more magnified for, I think, patients with transplants. So Samir, that that case report with those two cases, is that (laughs) right now that's the largest published series that we have with transplant patients with COVID-19? Yeah. And I mean, those are two patients with heart transplants. And so, I mean, those are much sicker patients. They're a different population than kidney transplant, lung transplant, bowel transplant. And so there may be a tendency to kind of extrapolate that data out, which is maybe not the best thing to do. Um, Just I think today or yesterday, there was a case report of the um, a recovery of a patient with kidney transplant was 12 years out, um, was on triple immunosuppression, and they kind of shared their management plan, which was stopping all immunosuppressants for a few days, giving um, steroids, IVIG, antivirals, antibiotics, and then eventually the patient recovered. Um, and so, okay, I just want to rewind. So, did they, when you say they, they were in triple therapy, they stopped even the steroids? No, uh, they kept the steroids. Sorry, they stopped the they the, the calcineurin inhibitor and the and the anti metabolite. Yep. Okay, and and the other thing that is, is curious: the Chinese case report about the heart transplants. They gave IVIG, but I thought that was pooled immunoglobulin that they harvested from people that had already recovered. Am I mistaken on that? I thought no, no, that that was that was China. what they gave. Right, and so that, and I, I think that's important is that the IVIG we have here probably doesn't have any antibodies against Cove, SARS-CoV two, SARS-CoV two. I can never get it right, SARS-CoV two. But I, that, yeah, but you could also right? make the argument that even with you know IVIG, there are these kind of other mechanisms of immunomodulation that we don't completely understand. Okay, but yeah, sure, that makes sense. Um, okay, and then this the okay, so the the kidney transplant. They hit them with everything they got, and they stopped the calcineurin and the antimetabolite. And in China, pretty much did the same thing, used the steroids, hit them with everything they got, including this pooled immunoglobulin. And they also gave in the kidney transplant patient um, inhaled interferon alpha, which I had not seen anywhere else. <laughs> okay. okay. I am awake now. <laughs> Can I do a literature okay. review on this? <laughs> Okay, so what are you guys doing for your transplant patients? Have you had any of them that gotten sick? Um, so we have a, a handful. Um, our consensus so far has not been to withdraw all immunosuppression. We're trying to keep low dose of calcineurin calcine inhibitor for now, um, and then working with our transplant ID team, who's you know staying up to date with the data and recommendations are kind of changing every day. 
um, about whether or not to use um, Plaquenil, which I know, again, not really great data for. Um, but I don't think that the transplant ID community has come up with kind of solid recommendations yet. Any reason not to use Plaquenil in a transplant patient? Um, no, I don't think there's any reason not okay. to other than the shortage right now. But And I'm, and I'm sorry, we both found hydroxychloroquine. Sorry. Right. Sorry. Hydroxychloroquine. Um, okay. So that, okay. So that's the transplant patient that has an active infection, what, but there's a number of other issues with, with, uh, transplant and COVID-19. Uh, what about, are you guys doing transplants? Should we be doing transplants? Is that, is that off the table for now? I think almost everyone agrees that living donor transplants, um, should be held right now. Um, and, um, both for concern for infection from the donor as well as the recipient, um, for the dis- and two hospital beds, right? Two hospital beds, um, and the and no watch, some anesthesiologists, some nurses, right? Right. Yeah. So yeah, just yeah, just using resources that are going to run out very soon. Um, for the deceased donor, um, for now, I think some hospitals are still doing them. I think it makes sense to maybe prioritize those that are highly sensitized, who may not be getting other offers in the yeah, future. The, um, yeah. But I think going forward in the next week or so, even those patients may be hard to make a case to, to transplant. Because those patients would probably need, you know, thymoglobulin or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like really lympho penis Yeah, there, there is actually a thread um, within one of the AST email groups that I'm in about whether or not it's okay to use T-cell de- depleting therapy. And there was an interesting discussion about how um, that may not actually increase risk for COVID infection and some immunology that's a little bit over my head, but um, basically suggesting that depleting the, the T-cells um, may not necessarily be that much of a increasing risk factor. And yeah. also on the when we're talking about the severe disease in that cytokine storm, some conversation about, um, and similar to the hypothesis for dialysis patients, that the decreased immune system may be protective against this kind of overwhelming cytokine storm. Hmm. So yeah. I'm told by, sorry, I'm told by Luther that, uh, Matt Luther, that you should not say cytokine storm. Apparently it's not a cytokine storm. I have used that word myself. Sorry, cytokine Apparently, release? Is that better? Cytokine, no, he says it's an, it's not. Cytokine tsunami uh, is what I call it. <laughs> uh, he says just inflammatory response. Oh, and okay. I'm not sure why. Okay. I'll, I'll get him to clarify. Uh, I, I, this is, seems like one of the renin renin things. Wait, Matt Luther or, or saying this? What, is, what does he know anything yeah, about? Yeah, Luther, Luther was saying that. I'll, I'll, you can check um so i i was like i don't okay, think okay. he was, he was really podcast, upset about so it so work. i said okay i'll change it to inflammatory response but i don't know why yeah, he's not a sepsis investigator right <laughs> but someone at wandy told him i'm gonna is, put this on twitter then yeah. um is cytokine storm <laughs> acceptable nomenclature okay uh <laughs> get results Samira, the any other podcast right <laughs> Samira, any other transplant issues that we should be thinking of that that we that you haven't addressed. Um, no, I think in general, what a lot of questions from our transplant patients about what they should be doing as precautionary measures, and we're really just reassuring them to do what has been advised of everyone else. And many of them actually told us that that's what they always do. Um, they know that they're immunosuppressed, and they're always trying to kind of avoid big crowds, and they know they're at high risk for infection. So um, we're trying to keep them out of our clinics for unnecessary visits, um, but trying to keep up with their routine blood work um, and just being in constant communication and, you know, a lot of kind of tensions and high stresses very reasonably. Excellent. But you're not, but uh, stable transplant patients, you're not changing any of their immunosuppression? No. And have any of the uh, transplant uh, organizations uh, 
made any statements, uh, very, you know, uh, agreeing with that or stating that that should be the policy? Uh, no really recommendations about what to do with respect to changing medications. Um, really just kind of reiterating this kind of hand-washing, social distancing, um, nothing really that's different for the rest of the population. And the, the drugs that we're seeing that are throw, that are being thrown around to treat uh, COVID-19, uh, none of those interact with the with our transplant drugs. Uh, so, Calitra, so low uh, pinavir ritonavir, um, is a CYP inhibitor. So, um, can markedly increase the levels because they're protease inhibitors. Levels of calcineurin inhibitor. Perfect. Perfect. I feel like I just okay. got pimped and I got it right. <laughs> oh, I know. I, but it, it, Joel was nodding because he it seems he knew the answer. I'm ready to spring that trap. Yeah. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm close enough to fellow Joel. close enough to fellowship that it still feels good. <laughs> this form of education is not recommended. <laughs> so says Saint Matt. <laughs> my God, I'm sweating. Uh, oh my gosh! See now, look at this. You can't be doing that. Okay. All right, the poll so, has been uh, deployed. We'll see what kind of response we get. Let's hope Matt Luther does not retweet it. Okay, so um, uh, the next thing that we had on the agenda was talking about hemodialysis. So uh, first of all, I'd recommend everybody go listen to the ASN webinar from last week. Uh, Partly as a, a, it's it's like locked in amber. Like this is the state of what we were doing for hemodialysis uh, on uh, March, what, 13th or 12th. When it got published, and things have already things have already changed. So in that podcast, they said if you had somebody who had uh, COVID nineteen, you try to put them in the into an isolation room if that was available. If you were, didn't have any hepatitis B patients currently, if not, try to put them at the end of the end of the row and make sure there were six feet between chairs. Yeah. So today on the Fresenius conference call, people that are confirmed. COVID-19 are going to be um, <laughs> cohorted onto a single shift or even uh, dedicated units. And so none of this putting them in a hepatitis B isolation room, none of this put them at the end of the uh, uh, row for confirmed COVID-19. They're going to have dedicated shifts either on a low, fit, you know, not a, such a busy shift where they'll move everybody else out. Or they'll have dedicated units and it's going to probably be a, a case by case basis, depending on where they are. I imagine it's going to be tough to do in rural areas. Um, but that sounds like the right thing to do. You know, it seems like you've got a population that's definitely at risk. And I worry a lot about, you know, one COVID patient just spreading it through the, you know, through the staff and then the staff spreading it across everybody. Um, and then they're going to be doing a lot of the same procedures that we're seeing in hospitals now where you're going to need to be screened every time you come in. Everybody's getting um, personal protective equipment uh, when they go onto the treatment floor. Uh, that's going to include uh, regular surgical masks, except for in these um, dedicated COVID-19 units and shifts. And then they're, they said they're going to be given N95s for that for that group. You know, this is a week later. This is a week after uh, the ASN had their webinar. And it sounds like for Sunday, this is really turning up the knob. I've not heard... Uh, what Davida is doing. What are you guys seeing at your dialysis units? So locally, we have um, started uh, screening as of uh, in, in a couple of the Fresenius units last week, uh, but in the rest of the hospital units uh, on Monday uh, at the door, um, we go with the questionnaire and um, uh, check the temperature first in the dialysis units. 
so far you know we haven't had anyone who's needed there was one uh, who turned out to be negative um so that's one uh, what we had we had a lot of issues with getting the testing done and I, and i think this is a common problem throughout the world uh, what we have done is we have created a separate unit um so all patients who uh, are suspected we send them to that unit and we have the facility to do uh, testing ourselves um with the nasopharyngeal swab which as you can know the the swab itself is an aerosol generating procedure so if you're doing the test you need to have an 95 and and all that uh, which is hard if it's a free standing unit uh, which came up on the nevjc chat right if you have a you know a clinic uh, which is not in the hospital you may not be able to do that so there should be some kind of uh, you know method uh, something you have to think about think through about how we are going to test that patient yeah absolutely so yeah um, anybody else have any experience in their own, in their own dialysis units I think we're doing something um, similar. Uh, I'm not in the dialysis units, um, but from what I heard, doing a kind of screening procedure, making sure that patients are not congregated together in the waiting room. They're screened before they even get to the waiting room. Um, and if they do um, have a positive screen, then um, they're tested. So far in our outpatient unit, we have not had any patients test positive, but if they do, the idea would be to um, do a dialysis in isolation. right and a little bit more on that um so we gave out uh, letters and handouts and explained to all our patients why we are doing this and the idea is if someone develops a fever they will probably not even come in they should call us um uh, so that it becomes easier and we can direct them to the right place and, and you're absolutely right about the waiting rooms we are trying to make sure that you know we are staggering them and trying to get them on the machine as fast as we can again the machine should be 6 feet apart and you know nose to nose they are probably 6 feet apart but uh you know in some units the space is tighter than in other other units what we do uh, what we the, don't want is to send our patients to the ER if they do have right. symptoms and so i think it's going to be a challenge as the numbers go up um kind of where do we do dialysis for them do we have a covid specific shift um or area i think those are all questions that we have not fully answered yet exactly and i think that's something people need to look at and try to get in place as we expect all of us will have patients hemodialysis right. and, there's, and there's the there's the other group right you have your covid positive and you got your asymptomatic and then you have your people that have symptoms but are not yet positive and you have your people that have uh confirmed contact with a covid you know so a covid mm-hmm. person in the in the house mm-hmm. and that and so you really you need to think of it as three groups and you really don't want any of them to mix you don't want to put the you know covid potentials with your covid patients and you don't want to put your asymptomatics with your covid potentials because that's what's going to drive this epidemic So it it is going to take a, a pretty delicate dance to get all these people dialyzed uh, correctly. Uh one of the top one of the ideas I think this came up in the um in the chat was taking the home training center that they have for that was 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 what was that you? Yeah, so it it was one of my colleagues Brendan McCormick who who actually was in Toronto during the SARS uh and he has a little bit more experience. Um he's got a funny story about it. He was never going to be a PD doctor. it seems and he was stuck with oreopolos for 6 months because uh, he, it sars was going on and he couldn't move uh, and and he spent 6 months every day with oreopolos and he you know for the, was for the listeners uh, can you tell us who that is so uh, dimitrios oreopolos was sort of like the father of peritoneal dialysis he uh, he 
I'm told he actually invented the cycler and gave it away to Baxter. I'm not, I don't know if that story is true. Uh, but, you know, the, the uh, Moncrieff and Popovich are also the other two guys who invent, who are credited with uh, uh, doing the ambulatory PD. Uh, but Oriopoulos was right there with them. Uh, and he's, he was a very generous, bigger, you know, larger than life character. He used to get, he got a lot of international fellows uh, to Toronto, train them, send them back to their home countries where they started PD programs. So he's had a global impact. He passed away a few, uh, uh, a few years ago. One of the, you know, really giants in, in peritoneal dialysis. Anyway, so to step back, Brendan uh, McCormick, he said, hey, we have six training, uh, we have six rooms where we train patients for peritoneal dialysis and home hemodialysis. Uh, what you need is a water hookup, right? Because of these are training, we have the water hookup to do hemodialysis. Uh, and they had their rooms with doors. They are not like the negative airflow, uh, but they are pretty close to isolation. And they are in sort of, they are not open. They are not next to the hemodialysis unit. Uh, so they are sort of, it's a segregated area. We were lucky to have that. And uh, um, so we shut down the home dialysis unit and we have converted that into the unit uh, uh, unit for um, uh, doing this now again th there are different schools of thought right do you want to shut down your pd program uh pd training so we are trying to still do pd training but in a in a different area uh because they don't need the isolation if you're just here for pd training keeping patients on pd keeps them at home and away from the in-center uh, hemodialysis unit so less exposure uh, for that and so on um if there's nothing else on that i wanted to touch upon transportation Big issue, transportation. Yeah, especially right. when so, you're moving units and stuff. Exactly. You're moving units, A. And B is if the patient is driving to the unit and going home on in their own vehicle, that's fine. But if they're using some kind of, say, public transportation or we have the accessible transportation vehicles, sometimes there are two or three patients from different places going together. Um, that would not be acceptable. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The, the other thing was that, which came up on the chat, is like, so we are using taxis now if there is a suspected patient so we will provide them with a you know a voucher for them to take a cab um, and maybe uber but then we should according to cdc guidelines which aisha uh, sheikh uh, uh, put on uh, during the chat you're supposed to tell them right because the god i hope so yeah oh so my so god, right so you're supposed to tell them uh, you're supposed to keep the windows open uh, during the ride um, and, and they should have a mask on and, and the driver <laughs> is yeah, in, in the winter. In, in it's an N95 mask in the in an aerosol protection. And the other one is just roll down the windows. <laughs> It'll be all right. <laughs> but, but the thing is, like, it's not a closed space for the driver, right? You don't want to infect the driver. And uh, the driver has to wipe down the vehicle uh, and stuff like that. So that that sort of stuff is... That does not sound like a solution. It, that, it just sound, not, that just sounds like it's the typhoid Mary, of the Uber Mary. Typhoid Uber. Right. But I, but I would COVID be happy Uber. if we had a better solution, right? Someone talked about WHO, I think, uh, mentioned that, hey, just admit all these patients. Uh, oh, no. But uh, <laughs> we don't have... Exactly. That's yeah, a terrible no, idea no, wait, as well. So We don't have, we don't have this... We, our inpatient dialysis unit can, could never dialyze these people. And and the, uh, the the fact that Alan Krieger and the, um, the other person who was on the chat... Mm -hmm. uh, so they made that uh, these patients are a priority, right? So uh, though they are home, they may be mi having mild symptoms and for testing, they may not be considered a high priority, but they can't self-isolate. They are coming to the unit three times they a week. They can't self-isolate. So That's the, exactly right. the priority for testing, and I think ASN is making the case as well, is that they should be considered high priority to get a quick turnaround because we really need to know if they're positive or negative so we can, you know, 
you know, protect the community. Yeah, protect the community uh, a little bit better. One of the other, who who was talking about making lists of people that could dialyze twice a week to try to kind of again minimize that traffic to the dialysis unit as another way to like, hey, for a, for a temporary time, we need to need we're going to decrease your exposure by dropping your dialysis by a third. So we are. Um uh, we are looking at that option, um, uh, and so we are using, you know, residual renal function, uh, interdialytic weight gains, um, uh, what kind of potassiums people run uh, to see if it would be feasible to do them uh, two times a week. And this is like a DEFCON three or DEFCON five kind of situation where all uh, everything breaks loose, um, and we need to do that. So the other the other part is not just the patients; it's the staff, right? So once uh, once your staff starts getting sick then I think nurses are a huge deal, right? If nurses start becoming sick, doctors less so. Uh, I'm not saying doctors are expendable, but nurses are, are in far closer contact with our patients. And, and there's and there's fewer of them that are in the unit, right? They can't run the unit without a nurse and there's not that many of them. Exactly. So, so if nurses start getting sick, uh, then that might be a huge uh, deal. And especially if you need to uh, isolate them with mild symptoms for two weeks, um, I've heard, you know, uh, some people are in other places in the world are like, okay, seven days is perhaps enough, not 14 days, just because they're in a crunch. Or, hey, you don't have symptoms, come on, go, go back to work. Put a, um, put a mask on and right, test you, we'll go forward. Right, which seems, you know, suboptimal, but I can understand why people are, you know, it, it's, it's really bad in some places why they're making these compromises. We've had a challenge on the inpatient side with um, knowing which patients are um about to be under investigation or about to have a test and it's not yet in the EMR under isolation. Yes. And so yes. um, one of our fellows actually brought that up to us and because we were telling them, you know, make sure you check the isolation before you go and see the patient or before you're getting ready to. And then one of our fellows told us that they, um, they saw a consult um, were writing the note and then found out later that evening when they were in the chart that the patient had become a suspect patient. Um, so I think it's, I mean, there's nothing we can really do about that. Um, but we're telling our, our nurses to check with the floor right before the patients are coming down to the unit that there have not been any changes and um, to try to protect our unit. Right. And I think that I think the, the whole key, you got to talk to the nurses. The nurses are going to be the most plugged in about the, the most recent status, the usually the most recent status of the patient. I think that's I mean, what's making everyone so nervous. It's just you never know what's around the corner. Uh, Jenny, do you want to kind of talk about uh, just mental health of, uh, of physicians? Yeah. So, you know, obviously right now is a stressful time for everyone, you know, in the world um, as we are dealing with a pandemic that for uh, at least a lot of trainees and a lot of people um, who are now young adults, this is kind of the first uh, big global crisis that we are all dealing with together. From a healthcare standpoint, even even if you're really old, this is really unprecedented. Yeah, this this is no, and right. I mean, this is much more infected than like than SARS, right? SARS didn't have or HIV, right? Like HIV was this huge epidemic when I was in medical school, but it wasn't it wasn't like this, right? And the rate of spread has just been you know um, exponential. And with a lot of astronomical uh, consequences from both lifestyle, but also with the economy. And so a lot of people are very stressed out on both a professional level um, in healthcare because you have uh, professional, you know, biohazardous exposure. And then also just from a personal standpoint, people um, are being pulled for more shifts. 
Um, there's going to be a shortage of healthcare workers as more people get sick and more people get called in to cover. Um, and, you know, our resources are going to be running low. And so with all of that, there's been um, a lot of physicians have been coming together in pr both private and public social media space to support each other. But I think the take home that I've been seeing on both forums is that's really important for all of us to take care of ourselves so that we can have enough reserve to take care of um, everyone who's being treated or for presumptive or with actual confirmed disease. Because if we if we go down, right, the whole system goes down. And um, I think that's putting on a lot of stress. But a lot of people have been sharing stories and um, even methods for how they're dealing with stress, yoga, meditation. Um, a lot of gyms are closed, uh, which is also unfortunate because that's exercise has been a really huge outlet of stress for a lot of healthcare professionals as well. And so there's been a lot of emphasis on different alternative ways to uh, promote self-care self and being there for each other emotionally as well. Yeah, absolutely. I can, You can just walking around the hospital, just overhearing what the nurses are talking about amongst themselves. It's a very tense place. People are really, people really are nervous. It really is a, it's a different feeling than I've ever felt before in the hospital. Yeah, there was a Washington Post article uh, which talked about, you know, doctors are looking at their wills. Uh, I just read the headline and I didn't want to read it any further. Um, uh, and I went through this feeling last week, right? I was, I was trying to get a patient tested and it was, nothing was going anywhere. The administration seemed to be stuck on, you know, travel history, which is meaningless for most of the world now. You know, you know only testing people who have had travel history is... Is, is, oh my God! Yeah, yes. but that's where that's where many places were stuck, right? Until a week or two ago, uh, community spread is is where uh, it's at. Um, yeah, it's it's been it's been tough. Uh, there's a Twitter account called Self Care Bot, which kind of tweets, uh, you know, go out, take a breath of air, you know, walk around, take care of yourself. So I, I follow that. Uh, uh, and yes, you have to take a break. Uh, it's 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 difficult. We are living through you difficult times. You just read times. the tweets, or do you actually go for the walk? I, I <laughs> he reads the tweets. You know me well. Walk, right? You know me well. Um, <laughs> I did a I but, did a home YouTube workout for the first time ever today. What what's your norm? Where do you normally work out? Um, well, I, I usually just I I walk so much because I I live in New York, so I walk everywhere. And now that has been drastically limited. And when I'm not on service, I'm at home. So it's hard to kind of get any exercise. Yeah. Matt, what are you doing for self-care? Well, the last few days I've been reading Ace 2 articles. Um, oh, that's what that, I love doing that. <laughs> he's, it's been like, he's been so excited. Like it's, yeah. you know, like, so I, I still remember the conversation, you know, we were putting together this COVID page and uh, Matt was talking with Andrew South uh, on, on Twitter about Ace 2 and I didn't understand anything. And I said, hey, Matt, uh, can you write a few lines on this? And and I expected like five lines, right? Uh, Matt <laughs> did like, you know, yeah, four graphs and 16 papers. And I said, uh, oh, this, uh, and Joel said, hey, this is uh, unwieldy. Let's make a separate page. It was, it was <laughs> funny. I just want to make sure you recognize. How <laughs> we, we, we could not stop Matt uh, talking about ACE2. It was great. It was great. I mean, it, the, I, you know, the, the amount of interest in this uh in this topic is just it's it's off the it's off the graph, you know, uh, the traffic that NFJC is getting with to Matt's COVID page. Well, it's not just Matt's COVID page, but the work that he's been 
centralizing has been, it's, it, we've never seen anything like it. It's by far the most popular content that we've ever seen. And we have a lot more coming out in other areas, transplant, mm-hmm. AKI, AKI. Right. hemodial. And so, and so, so Matt, why don't you, why don't you kind of talk about this new initiative? Because I think this is really important. I think after we saw the success of collating information and getting experts together, together to vet the information before we put it on the page, um, and scientific topics go into a lot more detail. Um, whatever we can find, we get together and we try to distill it down to what the reader needs to read. And so we're going to take that same approach to transplant, to AKI, to hemodialysis. And we're going to hopefully pediatrics, too, pediatrics right? and we get that out in the next, I don't know how long, a couple days. Yeah, They'll probably come on one at a time yeah. as the groups get together and, and put things together. Mm-hmm. But I, but you know, the idea is we're going to have a dedicated page for each one of these subcategories of COVID in the kidney, right? Whether it's AKI or hemodialysis or these arms. And the, and these are all issues where we're seeing a lot new, a lot of new research and a lot of new interest. And, uh, we're going to give you a reliable place uh, to see what the scientific debate is ideally. Right. Yeah. And talking of debate, Matt, you're being roasted on the cytokine storm on Twitter. Well, you know, I don't want to call that. I think it's, I'll call that more of a Twitter storm. Um, and I think that's, that is, we have almost 200 votes now. Uh, Matt Luther found it, or James, whatever he's calling himself now. Um, I hope he listens to this. I mean, it's an hour in. There's zero chance that's happening. Uh, so we have most people say, yes, cytokine storm is an acceptable nomenclature. However... It appears every rheumatologist has come out to play, including my brother. And I guess this is uh, like saying Renan to a nephrologist. Exactly. Uh, and by the way, I didn't get to the cohort. Uh, a cohort is um, uh, about 360 to 800 Roman soldiers. And uh, 10 cohorts make up a legion. You may have heard about the legion and the legionnaires, right? So uh, a cohort is like... Is that a, related to legionella? Uh, the people who survive legionella infection, they're called legionnaires? So that was, uh, if you remember, <laughs> that was a convention of legionnaires, wasn't it? Uh, uh, in, a, in a hotel. Yeah, 1976 in, right. uh, in Philadelphia. Exactly. So it's sort of related in I some think ways. I these sort of discussions, getting people together and just talking is very therapeutic. I think that's something that I've, uh, I've seen over the net last week, uh, just to have some human contact, not in person, but virtually uh, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just feeling like you're part of a community where everyone's trying to solve the same problem together, which is mm-hmm. kind of nice to see. Yeah, and that's it's that's sorry, that's the light, the the dark and the light side, right? Like uh, I think Joel had a talk about that. We talked about the fake news that's coming out, which being the dark side. But I think this is bringing us together, and we are finding solutions that work faster as well, right? We are sharing our ideas. You know, hey, maybe this is what we can do, and and I think good practices are also spreading uh, virally. Uh, just as well as the yeah, the bad. That's like in some of the papers we were writing, no one cared at all about what the order of the the authors were. Authors. No one cared. Mm-hmm. Uh, people actually just want to help find the answer, the right answer. Yeah. And that is really refreshing. Something for me that's been um, really great to see is I've done a lot of um, virtual teaching with medical students over the last week um, and just seeing the students kind of show up on Zoom and even with among medical students, there's this kind of teamwork um, energy that has been really kind of positive to see and has been also therapeutic for me. Nice. Can we put that on the uh, one of the things on our show notes, the tutorial for Zoom? 
I think is very high yield. And even though we've been using Zoom for a while, Samira had a nice tutorial and it goes through some different options like putting like some groups together for a certain period of time. And that can really make the uh, teaching uh, even better. Outstanding. Okay, we'll put, we'll put that together. Is there anything else anybody wants to uh, talk about? I'm, I'm happy to wrap this up. We've been going for a bit. Uh, I would like to give a shout out to Christos. Uh, I don't oh know. Oh my gosh! Yes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it's funny. Uh, so I don't know how many of you know Christos Argyropoulos. Um, for the listeners, he's um, uh, he's quite. A, I don't. I know Christos will not mind me calling him. He's quite a character. Uh, once you meet him in person, he's uh, he's had a varied uh, career. He's worked in industry. He trained in the U.S. He went back to Greece. He's come back to U.S. He's now the chief of. Uh, nephrology in new mexico and you might wonder what why does a nephrologist have what to do with covid i think he's been talking about this since january and he's been sounding the alarm since january and i think he's responsible for at least many people in the nephrology community taking taking this seriously way before the rest of the world did like he had a tweet thread in like a month ago saying hey this is what i'm doing you know i'm i'm planning for this and he was planning for you know defcon 3 uh and I'm like, why is he doing this? But, you know, that guy, yeah, he knew what he was talking about. He's, he's been, now, right now, whatever he says, I look upon him as a prophet. Uh, oh, Christos said this. Okay. I'm not going to doubt him. Whatever he says is true. <laughs> now, he, he uh, did make a trip. Even his hatred for kale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't like kale. So that's what You know, at, I just want to say, at, at ASN, hopefully will happen, the party. We're having a massive kale salad. For <laughs> <laughs> and ice cream kale ice cream we'll bring a flame one of those flame you know elon musk yeah. flamethrower gun and burn that kale salad that's where if we know if we get through this we'll all celebrate and i think that's uh, we're ready we're all we all know the worst has not come and the community has come together uh and it's going to be hard and and I, this is one of the the things i've seen is for instance we had to make the decision to shut down kidney con it was very it's a hard decision, but then after you made it, you're like, actually, it was a pretty easy decision. And that's what we're seeing. These hard decisions two days later, you look back and say, why did I even waste time even fretting about that? We got to make the right choice and do what we need to do to get through this. I kind of like that we didn't okay. talk about the hematuria or pertinuria at all. I like that. You do. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to bring it up. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> hey, this has, been, this has been awesome, guys. Uh, uh, everybody, be safe. Okay? Definitely. And uh, yeah, yeah, be uh, safe. We'll, t- we'll talk. Let's we'll keep talk. having some uh, discussions uh, on on COVID for freely filtered. Mm-hmm.